0: ready to rock and roll
1: where's that from
0: where's what from
1: oh (laughs) it's from a ghost hunting show that i like (laughs) one of the guys he lays down on this is there anything you don't
0: is there anything you don't watch it's like every other conversation i have with you oh i was watching there's this show that i watch but there's this youtube channel that i watch
1: (laughs) Lays... How do you have
0: the bandwidth for this stuff? God. <laughs> he
1: lays on this bridge and he goes, rock and roll, buckaroo, because he's trying to get the demon to haunt him or something. I don't know. That's what that made me think of. <laughs> I would not do okay. that. You could not pay me to lay on a haunted to be bridge. A, wait,
0: to be a, to be a ghost hunter or to, <laughs> to say, let's rock and roll, buckaroo?
1: No, I'll say, let's rock and roll, buckaroo, but I'm not laying down on a haunted bridge to do it. You ready, partner? Yep. Rock let's and roll, it. buckaroo
0: that's the title of the episode isn't it we already figured that out okay all right emily i'm ready hi this is mark
1: and this is emily and And we we can can do do this this all day.
0: day a podcast where we review all the movies in the marvel cinematic universe we'll go through each film in the mcu chronologically and discuss our overall impressions things we liked things we didn't like and everything in between we hope you'll tune in and stay with us till the end of the line and it's another friday night here in studio m emily good evening how are you doing
1: good evening by the time everyone has listened to this it'll be 2021 and we will have both had birthdays
0: we will have both that's right i almost forgot about mine thanks for reminding me i think for our first podcast of 2021 we have our review of The Avengers, or as they like to call it, Marvel's The Avengers. But first... That was the sound of our ticker tape machine exploding, because a week before we recorded this episode, Disney had its big annual Investor's Day presentation, and the folks over at Marvel Studios, well, Kevin Feige in particular, got up in front of everybody, virtually that is, and presented all of the big projects that are in development for Marvel in the upcoming months and years. It's normally a live event attended by the investors, but it was, you know, a pre-recorded deal this year. So Kevin Feige gave this nearly 30-minute presentation about all the upcoming MCU stuff, both theatrical releases and shows on Disney+. Plus. Emily, I cannot tell you how close my head came to exploding that night. The sheer number and scope of projects that got dropped on us was astounding. I mean, we'd heard absolutely nothing for all of these months, mostly because of COVID. Our patience was rewarded mightily Last week. It's a lot of stuff, but we will try to give you a very quick rundown of everything that Kevin Foggy said was coming up in the next couple of years. 21 points. Let's see if we can get through them fairly quickly. We got a new trailer for WandaVision, Division drops on Disney Plus on January 15th. Foggy also confirmed that Elizabeth Olsen is already in London shooting Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness with director Sam Raimi, who directed the original Spider-Man films with Tobey Maguire, and returning stars Benedict Cumberbatch, Benedict Wong, Rachel McAdams, and Chiwetel Echiofor. Joining the cast is Sochi Gomez, who will be playing America Chavez, a very popular and relatively recent addition to the MCU. She's a Latin American LGBTQ superhero. She debuted in Marvel Comics in 2011. That film is going to hit theaters on March 25th, 2022. And Feige also confirmed that the film will tie into both WandaVision, which precedes it, and the third Spider-Man film, which is going to be hitting theaters, supposedly, in December of 2021. After that, we got our first well not our first but our first really kind of long trailer for the falcon and the winter soldier which will be dropping on disney plus this coming march and emily and i of course are very excited about that they reannounced that black widow will hit theaters on may 7th 2021 we got our first trailer for loki with tom hiddleston and owen wilson which is coming to disney plus in may of 2021 we got the first trailer for the animated what if series coming to disney plus in the summer of 2021 a reannouncement that shang chi and the legend of the Ten Rings will hit theaters July 9th, 2021. First look at Ms. Marvel, the new series that's hitting Disney Plus in late 2021. Kevin Feige confirmed that Ms. Marvel will also be co-starring in the Captain Marvel 2 feature film. Eternals, of course, hitting theaters November 5th, 2021. We got a first look at the Hawkeye series with Jeremy Renner and Haley Steinfeld as Kate Bishop, coming to Disney Plus in late 2021. The She-Hulk series is confirmed for Disney Plus, starring Tatiana Maslany, Mark Ruffalo, and And returning for the first time as the Abomination, Tim Roth. We got confirmation of the Moon Knight series for Disney Plus, although he did not confirm Oscar Isaac. We're still waiting for that one. There's gonna be a Secret Invasion series on Disney Plus with Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury and Ben Mendelsohn returning as Talos. We're getting an Ironheart series for Disney+, Plus, starring Dominique Thorne as Riri Williams. We're getting an Armor Wars series for Disney+, Plus with Don Cheadle reprising his role as Rhodey. We're getting live action Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special on Disney+, Plus, written and directed by James Gunn himself. It is gonna be shot along with Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 and will drop the holiday season before that film's release in 2023. There's also gonna be an I Am Groot series of animated shorts on on disney plus for love and thunder the feature film will begin filming in january of 2021 right around the time this podcast hits with director taika waititi chris hemsworth natalie portman tessa thompson and we can now confirm that christian bale will be playing the villain gore the god butcher from the classic run of thor comics about a decade ago from jason aaron and isad rabik it hits theaters on may 6 2022 kevin feige also mentioned that They are hard at work on the Blade movie, starring Mahershala Ali. He also announced that Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, basically it's Ant-Man 3, with Paul Rudd, Evangeline Lilly, Michael Douglas, and Michelle Pfeiffer returning. And Jonathan Majors of Lovecraft Country will be playing the classic Marvel villain, Kang the Conqueror. Feige confirmed that Black Panther 2 will be releasing on July 8th, 2022. And finally, 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 music to my ears, he announced we are getting a proper fantastic four feature film the first family of marvel is finally getting an mcu debut and it's going to be directed by john watts who directed of course uh, spider-man homecoming and spider-man far from home (sighs) and that is it for mcu news but it was a lot thank you thank you
1: you did it you went through so fast
0: I know, I'm getting better at this.
1: I was worried, that's why I didn't interject on anything, but I am very excited for Hawkeye. I saw some footage the other day. I heard that maybe he might be deaf, which I'm super hype about. I'm very interested in Loki, and of course, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. I can't wait. I will be inconsolable when it comes out. I will not be reached for comments. I will not talk to anyone.
0: You're not gonna. You're not gonna join us on the the Disney Plus party app for that one.
1: There's a party app.
0: There's that watch party thing.
1: Oh. Oh you're no. Kind of like they have. No, they no. have
0: that watch party thing. No, oh, you, you have to. That
1: sounds weird. That sounds like too Cherokee
0: much. Cherokee wants to do it. We we gotta do that. We totally have to. Do that. You've gotta be there. It it would not. You you have to. I have to you download have to. an app. No, it's it's not even an app. It's part of Disney. It's built into oh. Disney Plus. You got to do it. We'll talk about that later. You got to do it. You got to do it. You got to do it, Em. You have okay. to be there for that. Okay,
1: I'll consider it.
0: So, our main event this evening, Marvel's The Avengers, the culmination of Phase 1 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Opened up May 4th, 2012 in the United States. It stars Robert Downey Jr., Chris Evans, Mark Ruffalo, Chris Hemsworth, Scarlett Johansson, Jeremy Renner, Tom Hiddleston, Clark Gregg, Kobe Smulders, Stellan Skarsgård, and Samuel L. Jackson. Screenplay by Joss Whedon. Story by Zach Penn and Joss Whedon. Directed by Joss Whedon. At the box office, it grossed $1.519 billion, that's B, billion with a B, on a budget of $220 million. It was the first MCU movie to cross the $1 billion threshold. It was a huge hit. This was As far as I know, the first ever superhero movie team-up ever presented on this scale on the big screen. This had never been done before. There were no guarantees that it was going to work. And I think it's safe to say that not only did it work, but it was quite a spectacle indeed.
1: So I guess we could then lead into our rankings. Do you want to go first or me?
0: I keep getting the feeling I went first last time, so why don't you go now?
1: Okay. It was easier to rank this one because I do remember ranking it very high in our first episode, and I also, like a responsible adult, went back and checked all of my rankings from the previous episodes a couple days ago. So I'm gonna leave this where I had it in the first episode at number three. And I have my problems with this movie despite it being pretty high up in my rankings, but there are so many more things that I do love about it. I love how well it ties everyone together from their initial movies. I know some people have trouble with this, but I love all the witty, funny one-liners. I think that's my favorite part of the movie. I love the final fight with the Chitauri and how it opens up the MCU to more of a sci-fi feel with the wormholes and all the aliens. For the time, for 2012, before we had Infinity War and Endgame and things like that, this was just so cool for the time. And I think it holds up.
0: I agree with you on absolutely every count, Emily. As we'll get into later on in the podcast, I have my issues with Joss Whedon and the quirky one-liners in general, but it worked in Avengers. There was just enough zing and just enough sass that made it entertaining without him going overboard like I think he does on a lot of things. I think I ranked it in our first episode at number five and I would I would keep it that way. I find this film, as we talked about in our first episode, eminently rewatchable. It was just I remember seeing it. I saw it on opening weekend. That was a lot of fun. It was just a lot of fun to see all these people on the screen, all these heroes on the screen for the first time. And it was like a comic book come to life. I was enraptured. It was a very joyous event. Let's get into the movie. After a brief teaser in which the other is talking to someone about the Tesseract and their ally leading a Chitauri army to Earth. We see Nick Fury and his lieutenant, Maria Hill, arrive at a SHIELD research facility which is currently being evacuated in the middle of the night. Agent Phil Coulson informs them that the Tesseract, which is being studied by a team of scientists led by Dr. Eric Selvig, has mysteriously and spontaneously turned itself on and is in danger of causing large-scale destruction due to massive energy spikes emanating from it. Before entering the facility, Fury orders Hill to remove all Phase Two prototypes, whatever those those are from the premises.
1: So what exactly was phase one? Because I don't remember anyone saying anything about that in any of the previous movies. And especially now, since we're watching it in chronological order, I feel like that would have been mentioned. And I assume that maybe phase one was get the band together, but in terms of the Avengers, but that hasn't exactly happened yet.
0: I don't think they ever explicitly state what phase one is. I just sort of assumed that it was everything that S.H.I.E.L.D. was doing with the Tesseract at that base before the base imploded.
1: Right, because phase two is weapons and phase one was...
0: I'm guessing it was all the testing and the studying of the Tesseract and so forth that needed to be done on the cube before they could use it to make the weapons. That's just a guess. I don't really know, but that's what I think.
1: I feel like when any time the Tesseract comes up because it's been so many places and because now we're watching its story happen almost in backwards motion, it's hard to keep track of where everything is. And it's only going to get worse as the movies go on.
0: <laughs> this is only the end of phase one, you know, a different phase one of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. So yeah, the Tesseract has still got some mileage left in it. Speaking of the Tesseract, at this point in the movie, the Tesseract does its funky glowing blue energy thing and opens up an intergalactic portal just long enough to allow Loki, armed with a scepter that appears to have mind control capabilities, to enter the shield facility. He kills a few agents and uses the scepter to take control of some of them, including Agent Clint Barton, aka Hawkeye, who was there to help guard the Tesseract, and Dr. Selvig. They subdue Fury and take the Tesseract. Maria Hill pursues and attempts to stop them, but they are able to escape just as the base goes kaboom. You know, I never tire of that deliciously maniacal smile on Loki's face when he first arrives. As far gone as we saw Loki get in Thor, he has clearly gone absolutely, positively bat bleep insane <laughs> since we last saw him, and this is where we get that now legendary I come burdened with glorious purpose speech. It's so evil. I love watching it. It's over the top in the best way possible.
1: Loki is absolutely unhinged and it's Perfect, because clearly he hasn't been having the best time since falling from the Bifrost. Like, things actually got worse. I also love this entire scene with the Tesseract. I love the quip at Hawkeye about how he should be keeping an eye on things, and he says something like, I see better from far away. And I also like that he clearly understands more about the Tesseract than Fury might give him credit for, even though Fury, from what we've seen in past movies, does have more experience with it. But Hawkeye easily parses it down to, it's the door to the other side of space, right? Doors open both ways.
0: Yeah, I do like how he's able to, you know, Selvig talking about all this and the thing and all the energy and all that. And he's like, it's a doorway, right? It opens on both sides. Just like you said, parses it down to its simplest parts.
1: Also, just to start it out, because we'll bring it up again. The glow stick of destiny as it's called later um (laughs) loki's scepter for mind control and it's more noticeable with Selvig. what happens but hawkeye misses when he aims at hill on the way out of the base and i don't think that's because he couldn't make the shot i think it's because maybe the glow stick of destiny is not as good as it could be at its job
0: either that or it's just a testament to clint's mental strength and his willpower he's clearly fighting it every step of the way you kind of get a sense of that later on in that scene in the infirmary on the helicarrier just how much he was fighting it and how upset he was that he ultimately could not win but that's later on in the movie and so nick fury activates the avenger initiative and begins to get the band back together like you said earlier Starting with Black Widow, who we see very comically recalled by Phil Coulson in the middle of a covert op that she's on the verge of completing. This is our first hint that Natasha and Clint have some sort of a connection. She's clearly irritated Coulson for interrupting her assignment when he first calls her, but the moment he says Barton's been compromised, it's like her entire demeanor changes and she's clearly ready to drop everything she's doing to come home and help.
1: I also like that you can tell that Colson, Natasha, and Clint have some sort of, like, friendship or connection going on, too, because their little argument about who's supposed to go get Tony is pretty funny. Yeah.
0: So Agent Romanoff is sent to Calcutta to retrieve Bruce Banner, now played by Mark Ruffalo, making his MCU debut. The Tesseract emits low-level gamma radiation, and since Banner is arguably the world's foremost expert in gamma radiation, Fury wants him to look for it. I find it interesting how we get our first hints of Natasha's close connection to Hawkeye, and then only minutes later we get this scene with her and Banner, which we now know foreshadows her relationship with him in Age of Ultron. And we know she's going to be talking about her relationship with Fury in just a little bit in the movie and how he kind of saved her. And of course we see more of that and her relationship with Cap in Winter Soldier. I'd kind of like to get a female perspective on this, Emily. I mean, do you find it frustrating that, at least at this point, Natasha Romanoff is seemingly only defined by her relationships, platonic or otherwise, with men?
1: I mean, how long do you have for this episode? (laughs) Because I could obviously talk about this all day. I like Natasha. I like Black Widow. I think Scarlett Johansson has done a good job with the role. But throughout the whole series of movies, they tease her sort of as a romantic interest with nearly every major male character except Fury and Clint Barton and to a smaller extent with Steve and then, you know, Thor just by virtue of him being Thor, depending on who's writing the movie. And... Whether they were intentional about that or not, I think there's an important distinction to be made in that specifically for this movie, the two relationships being Fury and Clint Barton, to me, feel more legitimate. Like, it feels like there's a reason for those relationships to happen outside of male character growth. Natasha isn't presented as existing directly because Barton or Fury exist, but more so they're coexisting. And for everyone else, specifically for Tony and for Bruce... She only exists because they need someone to move the male character forward. And, you know, if you're going to do that, you might as well toss an expendable female character in there to do it. Right. And I'm not going to talk about Endgame yet because this is not the episode for Endgame. You'll get more I, of this I, I, in Endgame.
0: <laughs> I was going to warn the audience. I guarantee you're going to get a lot more of that.
1: Oh, you're going to get so with much Endgame. of it. You're going to get so much of it. You won't even know what to do with yourself. You're going to regret it. <laughs>
0: Wait, who's going who's to regret it? The audience or me? Or both of us? Both of you. I agree with you. The The relationships with Clint and with Fury, both of them feel very organic. I think the thing I like about her relationship with Cap is that since she's just meeting him, I guess, for the first time in Avengers, you get to see that relationship grow. You actually you get to see kind of the genesis of it. And you get to see the whole progression of it throughout the MCU. But clearly, her history with Barton and with Fury is special too and is, is untouchable. And like I said, I think... It's a very organic, very natural feeling relationship.
1: Right. And I love her friendship with Steve, particularly in Winter Soldier. I think it's really great. It kind of has that like buddy cop kind of feel to it even though it's a very serious movie
0: yeah it's got the buddy cop feel and but at the same time it's kind of like she had this friendship with barton and this i guess you could call her friendship with fury so there's precedent of her having close relationships with members of her team and cap was just sort of the newest addition to that so you saw them grow just like you assume her relationships with clint and fury grew and you see a lot of that in civil war too you know who were the only two avengers who went to peggy's funeral sam and natasha We get a brief object lesson in the joys of bureaucracy as the World Security Council expresses its dismay at Fury's desire to reactivate the Avenger initiative. Instead of focusing on this mysterious Phase 2, when they dismissively tell him that wars can't be won with sentiment, Fury agrees and says that they're won by soldiers. Not coincidentally, we cut immediately to Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America, who's working the bag in a gym in Brooklyn, although actually I guess it's several bags, as you see from the ones that are lying on the floor after he's subsequently destroyed all the ones that he's been hitting. Fury shows up and recruits him to help find Loki and the Tesseract, which Steve, of course, is quite familiar with. You know, for some reason, I never really paid attention to the when I wake up, they say that we won. They didn't say what we lost line until I rewatched the movie this week. Even at this early moment in the film, we're getting our first hint that Cap is having some trouble adjusting to the 21st century. For some reason, I just never noticed that line. Finally, cut to Tony Stark, a.k.a. Iron Man, who we see activating an arc reactor to power Stark Tower in downtown Manhattan with sustainable, clean energy. I love that whole exchange with Pepper saying, how does it look? And Tony says, like Christmas, but with more me. That's just classic Tony. Their celebration, however, is interrupted by Coulson, who is there to recruit Tony to the cause of searching for the Tesseract. This surprises Tony a bit, as he had last been informed that he would not be an official part of the program due to his perceived inability to work well with others. And then we get another great Tony Stark line, like, Phil? His name is Agent.
1: I also like the bit between Pepper and Tony where he says, I thought we were having a moment. And she goes, I was having 12% of a moment. It's probably my favorite joke in the movie. I also love Phil's first name being Agent.
0: You really do like that 12% line, don't you? I
1: love that 12% line. It's so funny.
0: So Cap, Banner, Natasha, and all the S.H.I.E.L.D. folks gather aboard the Helicarrier, which as a comics fan, I just want to say seeing the Helicarrier rendered in a live action motion picture was
1: Awesome. Here's also where we get one of my favorite scenes in the movie. We talked about uh, a couple weeks ago, the last time we hung out outside the podcast, our favorite movie slash TV scenes. And earlier in the movie, in the gym, Cap said he c- that he couldn't be surprised by anything. And Fury says, bet you 10 bucks you're wrong. And when they get into the helicarrier and he sees everything and all that it can do, Steve slips him the money. It's perfection it's so funny i never noticed it until maybe like three years after the movie came out and someone told me that it happened but as soon as you notice it
0: kudos to joss whedon who a subtlety i don't think is one of his is one of his strengths but that was a very very clever moment in the movie i remember i noticed it when i first saw it in the theater i thought okay that's pretty funny dr Selvig informs loki that they need iridium to make the tesseract work the way they need it to work and apparently iridium can only be found in meteorites so loki and barton go to stuttgart germany to steal a sample shield learns that he's there so cap and natasha are dispatched to apprehend him thanks to some timely assistance from tony loki is apprehended but barton gets away with the iridium okay can we just agree right now that cap's uniform in this movie is downright awful
1: hmm. nearly everything about cap in this movie is awful to be honest. <laughs>
0: Whoa, ouch!
1: Whether it's the writing or the outfits, to me, it's all kind of bad. I think they really did him a disservice in this movie, and uh, I would also say in Age of Ultron. Despite all that, his scene with Loki, in particular, his little bit in Stuttgart following Loki's you-crave-being-ruled nonsense, it's quick, but it's good, and it makes me think of our pulpy World War II Captain America that we haven't seen since the first episode that we did
0: it's a very cool scene it was kind of nice as a Captain America fan to see Cap in action for the first time since his own movie not sure how I felt about Tony having to bail him out but we'll let that one slide Natasha Cap and Tony are in the process of taking Loki back to the helicarrier by Quinjet when lo and behold Thor arrives to take his brother back to Asgard to answer for his crimes committed there
1: it's probably been a while since I've thoughtfully watched this movie because like we said on our very first episode it's just such a rewatchable movie that you don't have to think much about it when you turn it on because you've seen it so many times. But obviously this is where Cap and Tony start as the two competing factions that end up duking it out in Civil War. And obviously here, Tony is a brat to Steve and Steve is pretty uninterested in the back and forth. But I'm wondering why they start off so rough in the first place. You know, for Tony, we know that Howard talked a lot about Cap and made Tony feel inadequate, but Cap has been frozen for 70 years at this point. And he didn't seem to have many negative feelings towards Howard in the first movie. Is it just the abrasiveness of Tony or the fact that they're both actually pretty similar personality wise? And you know how it can be when two people who like to be right and run their mouths are when they get together.
0: <laughs> was, was that supposed to be a not so subtle commentary on you and me?
1: I think we both like to be right.
0: <laughs> no, yeah, we do.
1: I like you're, to run you're, my mouth. You're, you're right about
0: that. To respond to what you said, one of my few problems with this movie is the seemingly forced conflict between the various Avengers in the film. It's it's almost like Whedon feels he has to shoehorn it into the movie because in the comics, They're always arguing that's just the nature of Marvel Comics. And because he needs to have that as a plot device to make the movie work, I think that killing off Coulson later on, sorry, spoiler alert, was something that Whedon was insistent on doing because that's what he likes to do in his films. You know, I think of Alan Tudyk's character in Serenity getting killed off, you know, his death was supposed to be a complete surprise. And then, you know, the same with, again, spoiler alert, Quicksilver in Age of Ultron. It's almost as if he had to add all this conflict early in the movie so that Coulson's death would galvanize them. My opinion is that when you write a film, a book, or a TV show, anything like that, you're supposed to write a story and then add the layers to it, not write up a laundry list of things that you want to see and then write the story around that. And yet a lot of times I think that's just what Joss Whedon's M.O. is he seems to do that a lot Thor nabs Loki from the Quinjet and takes him to an undisclosed mountaintop where he tries to get Loki to tell him where the Tesseract is as well as the identity of whoever he's working with to enable him to do everything that he's done so far I really enjoy this scene we get a nice little recap of the dysfunctional family dynamic between Thor and Loki and uh, the root of Loki's jealousies we're reminded of Loki's delusions desire to rule. We also get to see that deep down Thor genuinely loves his brother. He talks very movingly of how all of Asgard including Odin their father mourned Loki's apparent death and how all he really wants Loki to do at that point is to just come home. In the middle of their conversation however Tony rockets in and starts fighting with Thor trying to get him to turn over Loki or even better the Tesseract loki looks on in amusement cap shows up and attempts to broker peace it takes a moment and surviving thor striking cap's shield with mjolnir but ultimately thor does agree to accompany loki back to the helicarrier with cap and tony as every marvel comics fan could tell you it just wouldn't truly be a marvel movie unless the heroes fought with each other at least once and so it should surprise no one that in our first mcu team-up movie we get our first mcu hero versus hero fight and i think it's a good one frankly you've got tony in his state-of-the-art Earth tech versus Thor's seemingly mystical Asgardian tech, and it ends in a draw, You know, especially after Thor hits the shield, which is so cool.
1: I'd pay $10 and a can of Coke To know what Loki was doing while Tony and (laughs) Thor were fighting. Uh Like, you got some snacks in your pocket, bud? (laughs) Some reading material? Like, what are you up to?
0: Maybe he was drinking a Coke. Maybe he bought it from a vending machine on the helicarrier using Cap's 10 bucks, which he stole from Fury.
1: It's just so funny thinking about because obviously he wants to get onto the helicarrier. That's sort of his end goal in this instance. So he had to stick around. But, like, you're just going to sit there, you know, kick back. I don't think he's got a cell phone, so there's no, you know, can't play Snake on your phone or Among Us. There was no Among (laughs) Us in 2012, but you can't play whatever 2012's version of Among Us was.
0: This is Loki. I think the only thing he loves more than stirring the pot is watching the (laughs) results.
1: Watching it boil over.
0: Watching it boil over. With Loki apprehended and locked up in a Hulk-proof cell on the helicarrier, the group deliberates what to do next.
1: I, again love all of the funny lines in this whole scene the conversation between fury and loki it ends with fury being like well let me know if real power wants a magazine or something (laughs) and banners "Mm, he really grows on you doesn't he and the his mind is a bag of cats with thor being like don't talk about my brother that way and then he says he killed 80 people in two days and thor just goes Mm.
0: He's adopted.
1: He's adopted?
0: My son is adopted and he watched that movie with us for the first time. We stopped for a moment just to ensure him, no, 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 it's just a joke. The movie's not inferring anything about adopted people. So you're not going to turn out into an evil psychopath, my son. (laughs) I hope, I hope not. (laughs) While secretly placing a device on one of the ship's consoles, Tony theorizes that the iridium stolen by Loki and Barton will be used to stabilize the wormholes opened up by the Tesseract. They can be made as big or as small as necessary, and can stay open as long as needed. The group also theorizes that Loki probably has his sights set on the arc reactor powering Stark Tower as a power source for whatever he plans to do with the Tesseract. Tony, Banner, and Cap start to wonder why Tony was brought in, specifically, to look for the Tesseract. Tony reveals that he put a device on Fury's console on the bridge to hack into S.H.I.E.L.D.'s files in an attempt to find out what's being planned for the Tesseract in the first place. More initial clashes between Steve and Tony, establishing how different they are in personality and demeanor. I think this is crucial, as their relationship in this film lays the groundwork for their relationship for the rest of their tenure in the MCU. Also, I never realized until rewatching this film for the umpteenth time, just this week, how much I like that brief scene between Tony and Banner, where Tony tries to to compare the arc reactor and the armor that saved his life with the hulk who in a very bizarre sort of way kind of saved bruce's life saved it for what i guess we'll find out
1: science bros <laughs> i do really enjoy the friendship between tony and banner it's too bad that at least in my opinion bruce gets sidelined for more Hulk action in the later movies because I would have really liked to see their relationship grow past its point in Age of Ultron.
0: Yeah you saw a lot of budding friendship between them in Avengers and the little teaser a little post-credit scene in the end of Iron Man 3 which we will get to in not too long from now but yeah after that it's kind of like they gave that up for Banner Thor which is still very funny but I kind of miss Tony Tony Bruce. Even Cap ever the trusting sort is getting a little suspicious of Fury's motives and he begins snooping around the helicopter carrier ends up discovering phase two top secret high-tech weapons developed by shield from the tesseract that will be used to defend the planet from extraterrestrial threats another little scene that i never paid much attention to until now is that brief scene between thor and colson where colson tells thor that jane foster is in a safe location and in which thor continues to sincerely regret that Asgard's problems keep becoming Earth's problems. The growth that we saw in Thor in his solo movie it seems to have continued as he points out the irony of the Asgardians pretending to be gods on Earth when in fact they're just as flawed and petty as humans are.
1: Or as repulsive as build snipes are.
0: Bilge snipes, I forgot about that.
1: Something else that I never thought of before this rewatch is that Thor knows that he won't get to see Jane even though he's finally back on Earth after the events of his solo movie. And I think he seems to take it pretty well although I guess he does have other things to worry about but I think that also shows growth too that his whole goal Probably was to get back to Earth to see Jane, but he knows that solving this issue with his brother is more important.
0: I know we're, we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but when we get to Thor the Dark World, I always got the sense that there was a part of him that was almost afraid to go back to her, much as he wanted to. This is just a gut thing, and I don't know why I think it. It's like he was afraid to go see her because he thought maybe he wouldn't want to leave Earth because he wanted to be with her or because he was too afraid of having to say goodbye to her again. I don't know. I always got the sense that he was trying to avoid her. Natasha pays Loki a visit in his cell, appearing to be prepared to bargain for Hawkeye's life, but of course she's just trying to get Loki to let his guard down enough to spill some vital clue as to the nature of his plan, which he does by making a quip that hints that he may be planning on using the Hulk against our heroes.
1: I really like this scene with Loki and Natasha because at the time we really don't know a whole lot about her. We've only seen her in one other movie so far and in that movie, Iron Man 2, she went straight from a capable but mostly sidelined assistant for Tony to what everyone imagines of Black Widow, at least in a physical fighting sense. And now we finally get to see her use emotions and her skills as an actual spy to get something she needs. And she obviously played up that emotion to get Loki to keep pushing it and make him slip up because of course she cares about Clint, but to get that emotional in front of Loki, who's essentially a mark, you know, I think a spy like Natasha would only do that if she was playing an angle.
0: And I do love that we also get a bit more of Natasha's backstory. that She was an assassin, that Clint was sent to kill her but didn't, and now she owes him a debt of gratitude, the red in her ledger that she wants to get rid of. I think it's just great character development.
1: I think all of those things are true, and I think she does feel all of those things, especially because she brings it up again later with Clint specifically. I do like that she is capable enough at espionage as a spy in the emotional sense that she can bring all those things up to further her end goal.
0: Tensions come to a head as the group confronts Fury about Phase 2 and shields plans for dealing with perceived threats. Their arguing allows a team of Loki's possessed henchmen, led by Hawkeye, to attack and infiltrate the helicarrier, seriously damaging one of the engines and forcing Banner to transform into the Hulk. I've always wondered why the arguments between the various heroes in this scene seem kind of contrived or forced. For example, Cap and Tony getting into this playground pissing contest, it just seems so like either of them, especially Steve. Is the scepter making them all paranoid? I mean, that's that's what seems to be implied.
1: I know you don't like the major argument, but I like at the end where Cap is like, "Put on the suit, let's go a few rounds," and Tony's like, "Oh yeah, okay," and then everything happens, and Tony and Cap are both like, "Okay, yep, suit, let's Uh, go." Put
0: put on the suit. Yep. (laughs) Put on the suit. Yeah. Okay.
1: (laughs) I always loved that really quick transition of they both know that it's time to cut it out.
0: And then, of course, at this point. We've got the big set piece with a ton of stuff going on. The Hulk is chasing Natasha. Cap and Tony are trying to repair the damaged engine. Thor gets into it with the Hulk. Fury and Hill are fighting off Hawkeye and his commandos on the bridge. Helicarrier is in freefall. The Hulk ends up in freefall. Thor ends up in free fall. Everybody's falling. Loki escapes. Loki kills Coulson. Clint and Natasha fight. Natasha snaps Clint out of it with the tried and true trick of clocking him over the head really hard. I've said this to you before. I'm not a big fan of Joss Whedon. I don't like how he gets by by bludgeoning you to death with annoyingly quirky characters and witty one-liners that don't seem to end. But I gotta hand it to him. His direction of this entire sequence is masterful. I mean, there's a lot going on. Got multiple characters doing different things in different places, and yet it all makes sense. You can follow it, you know what's going on, and it's exciting as hell.
1: It's unfortunate, too, because I feel like for the sake of this episode not being two hours long, we have to sort of skim over this whole scene. But I do really love all of this, and I'm going to do something again that I know you won't exactly like, but in musicals, again, there's always a song and it's usually in the middle or right after the middle where all of the motifs and noticeable themes in the music come in and all the characters come in and they all intertwine with each other for this one big crescendo before the show has to make its way to the ending. And that's kind of what this all feels like, like everything is coming to a head before the big boss battle. And also, Poor Colson. Pour one out for the OG.
0: First of all, I would like to go on record. Hate is such a strong word.
1: Well, you see, I didn't use I, hate. I used hate in the notes, but I did not use hate. I used dislike this time.
0: They're just not my cup of tea, but that's okay. Different strokes for different folks.
1: But that is what this is. It's like this big pre-Battle of New York battle where it's like the testing ground to get everybody together for the big final ending i've always really really liked this i love all of the scenes with steve and tony trying to get the engine back together where steve is like it seems to run on some kind of electricity electricity. and he gets all mad about it
0: well you're you're not wrong
1: (laughs) (laughs) and it uh i just also i am not as skillful or as good at tech obviously as tony is But when he's trying to explain to Steve what to do... To get the engine going again and he finally gets tired of it and he's like see the red lever well, well, pull that."
0: well remember steve's like english please
1: yeah but now, I, this is a
0: man who this is a man who you know just a few months earlier was in 1940 something and of course as you would expect when steve needs to pull it he can't pull it because he's busy fighting off possessed shield agents <laughs> seeing tony just kind of being spun around endlessly under that rotor just kind of like help <laughs> waiting for steve to pull the red lever Fury meets with Steve and Tony and shows them the bloodied Captain America trading cards that he says were in Coulson's jacket when he died. He says that, yes, S.H.I.E.L.D. was using the Tesseract to construct weapons, but he also insists he was more heavily invested in the Avenger initiative and its emphasis on bringing back heroes. Thor and Banner, not Hulk, pick themselves up after their respective falls from the helicarrier. Clint wakes up in the infirmary with Natasha. Loki's grip on his mind finally broken. He's traumatized at having been violated and and having caused so much death and destruction while under Loki's influence. This is where Natasha gives her this is monsters and magic and nothing we were ever trained for speech. Despite that fact, Natasha wants to continue to fight and help get the red out of her ledger. Tony and Steve deduce that Loki doesn't want to just defeat the team. He wants to do so very publicly. They and the rest of the heroes begin making their way to New York. Fury admits to Hill that he was using Coulson's cards, which were in his locker and not in his jacket, to motivate the others to work as a team. Loki is using Stark Tower's arc reactor to power the Tesseract, now protected by an energy shield, and opens a portal to the awaiting Chitauri army on the other side of the galaxy. Tony engages them, and the Battle of New York begins. Thor arrives and fights Loki at Stark Tower. Cap, Natasha, and Clint arrive in a Quinjet as more Chitari arrive through the portal. So let's talk a little bit about Tony's confrontation with Loki in his office. It's an important scene for a lot of reasons, I think. It's the first time that we hear the team referred to as the Avengers. It's the scene in which Tony articulates that, even though it was Loki's plan to thwart the heroes by manipulating them into fighting each other, It's ultimately a flawed plan because in the process, Loki got them all more pissed off at him than at each other. It's also notable because when Tony does the head count of each of the Avengers, he notes that Cap is, quote, a super soldier a living legend who kind of lives up to the legend. Just a little earlier in the movie, he was griping to Bruce about how his father was always raving about Steve Rogers, and he was doing it in kind of a really annoyed tone of voice. Despite all their clashes in this movie and in future movies, I think it's pretty obvious, and I think this line demonstrates that, that Tony actually admires Cap, albeit maybe a little quietly or at least I think he wants to. It's kind of ironic that the only person that we ever hear him verbally confess this to happens to be one of the villains.
1: Another reason I really like this scene is that outside of Just With Cap you see that Tony actually admires everyone on the team to some degree. You know he's seen what they can all do and he respects them for that and I think after getting denied from the team the first time He realized that he could keep being just Iron Man, handling small time problems that only matter to him, or he could be a part of the team and handle big issues that actually mean something to the rest of the world. And I think it's a major tipping point for his growth as a person and as a superhero. This movie has a lot of Tony growth points, of course, because it's Tony Stark. You know, the (laughs) Tony Stark and the Avengers in quiet, small italics.
0: And because Robert Downey Jr. is the first name in the credits.
1: Right, yes.
0: At this point in the movie, I think a lot of average moviegoers who weren't necessarily fans of the comics, and weren't entirely aware of Captain America's abilities, were wondering what exactly he brought to the table in a fight of this magnitude. That's why I think the scene with Cap talking to the two cops about setting up the perimeter and protecting the civilians is so important, because it demonstrates his role as a leader and as a strategist. He also beats up four Chitari soldiers in a matter of seconds thus reminding us that he is a super soldier and that he's still quite a formidable combatant.
1: I guess if you hadn't seen the first Captain America movie, you might think that. Or if you weren't paying attention to his fight with Loki or saw him on the helicarrier trying to fix the engine with Tony, like... Yeah, until now he hadn't fought an alien, but do people think that just because he can't fly? Because I think that might be why people would think that, because Hawkeye and Black Widow get sort of sidelined as these sort of secondary Avengers because they're normal humans, and Cap does give off this vibe of being a normal human, but... Like you said, he is a super soldier and it's only been a couple months, presumably, since he was dug out of the ice. Thought out. Yeah. So he's still perfectly capable of fighting. Just the fact that he can't fly and isn't a giant green rage monster and isn't. A god.
0: He's still technically superhuman. You know, he's not Hulk superhuman or Thor superhuman, but he has above average strength and dexterity and healing ability. Once again, I blame Joss Whedon for writing Steve badly. Banner arrives and transforms into the Hulk at will, thus completing the Avengers. They continue to fight the Chitari onslaught as a team. So many now iconic moments in this movie. We get Banner's. You know, I'm always angry speech, followed by the Avengers circling up, which is arguably the most comic book moment of the entire film, and it is glorious. Never before had we had a superhero team movie like this, and we were finally getting to see what this team looks like when it's actually fighting together as one unit. The bit where Cap uses his shield to split Tony's beam onto a bunch of Chitari. When I first saw this movie in the theater, I was with a buddy of mine who was also a fan of Marvel Comics. In fact, he'd been a fan longer than I had. And he and I, when that beam split up on the shield, he and I just looked at each other for a moment and we just yelled out something like, ah, in the theater. And we just totally geeked out. It was a great moment.
1: There are also a bunch of little things in this fight that I really like. I like that Hawkeye goes back to retrieve his arrows because he he has yes. a limited amount of arrows. I always thought that was thoughtful and cool. I also was always really interested in the chains keeping the Chitauri attached to their yeah um, their gliders sleds. or whatever they are <laughs> because you know of course Chariot. you don't you don't want them to fall off the gliders, but that's clearly not for safety. You know <laughs> they're clearly not acting on their own free will. As agents of the other. Mm -hmm. And so I always liked that it played a dual role of keeping them on the glider sled things, but also making you aware that they're chained to it in a Mm -hmm. sense.
0: Yeah, that's true. I also
1: love watching Natasha try to fly one of those. Turn, 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 turn. (laughs) That part's so funny.
0: It's like one of the first times you ever see her struggle with something. You get a sense of just, she realizes that she's in over his head. This isn't what we were trained for. And so it's taken her a little bit, but she's, you know, she's up to the task. Going back to Hawkeye and the bit with him retrieving the arrows, I mean, we actually do get to see his quiver run out, you know, he goes back and reaches for an arrow and it's not there. So he has to go and grab that other one and put it back in there and then flip on the grappling hook thing so he can, you know, do his Bruce Willis, John McClane, diehard, jump off the building and crash in through one of the windows thing.
1: I like, too, when he shoots the explosive arrow at Loki and Loki grabs it right before it hits him and he turns like, aha, you didn't get me. And it blows up (laughs) in his face. (laughs) But I think that also might speak again to Hawkeye's ability to fight the mind control. Because I wonder if maybe there were instances like at the base at the beginning of the movie where he missed, he didn't hit Hill. And I'm wondering if there might have been other instances where he wasn't as successful and maybe Loki devalued his fighting abilities because of that. And I think that maybe helped him in the long run because being underestimated, I think that helped him. Because when Loki grabs it, he's like, ha, I got you. And it's like, nope, Hawkeye got you.
0: I don't know if he necessarily devalued Hawkeye's fighting abilities. Otherwise, he wouldn't have let him lead that assault on the helicarrier. You know, he must have known what Clinton was capable of doing. He shoots the arrow into the wind, knowing that the wind is going to push it in the right direction. I think it's just Loki's hubris. He just assumes, oh yeah, I know every trick in this guy's book. (laughs) Surprise! And did you, I also love, especially on the rooftop, like half the time, he doesn't have to look where he's aiming to hit stuff. He's just drawing and shooting, drawing and shooting, which I always thought was kind of cool. In the middle of the fight, the World Security Council orders Fury to initiate a nuclear strike against the city but he of course refuses. Hulk catches up with Loki at Stark Tower and as we all know by now hilariously beats him into submission. Natasha makes it to the roof of Stark Tower where the Tesseract powered wormhole generator is along with a now liberated but very dazed Eric Selvig who tells her that he made it so that Loki's scepter could penetrate the force fields surrounding the generator and cut its power. The council overrides Fury and sends up a nuke to destroy the city anyway. Tony intercepts the missile and guides it into the wormhole, destroying the Chitari command ship and disabling all the remaining Chitari forces on Earth. Tony falls back to Earth through the wormhole just as Natasha uses Loki's scepter to close it.
1: Welcome to Trauma Town. Population: Tony Stark, <laughs> Eric Selvig, and Clint Barton, the current mayor is Steve Rogers, and the city council is Bruce Banna and Natasha Romanoff.
0: <laughs> Let's take a head count. <laughs>
1: I do like that Hulk is the one to save him because, like, Thor is obviously on his way. He's, like, trying to spin up, but Hulk comes out of nowhere to catch Tony when he's falling out of the wormhole. I think that really cements the awesome science bros friendship that we get to see later on
0: (laughs) something that just popped into my head as we were talking about this you know we talk about was hawkeye subconsciously fighting against loki's mind control by not hitting hill back in the opening scenes of the movie it makes me wonder now when eric selvig created that fail safe that allowed them to kill the power to the device with the scepter. Was he doing that just as a general science technical precaution that anyone would do, or was that Eric Selvig fighting back against the scepter's mind control abilities?
1: I think he was fighting back. You think so? Yeah.
0: I like to think that. We talked in the Thor episode how much I like Eric Selvig. So I like to think that that was him. Thor uses the Tesseract to transport himself and Loki back to Asgard.
1: I do like the voiceover here with Fury and the World Security Council. I like that Fury in his own way, sort of defends the Avengers. And I always appreciated that that he you know it's been how many years since Captain Marvel and especially since she's left and he knows that if the world really needs her she'll come back and I think he puts that same feeling onto the Avengers as well
0: I should hope that he's defending the heck out of the team seeing how the Avenger initiative was his idea
1: but I like I like that it feels like it's more personal now I guess
0: that's true and he's seeing the fruits of his labor they're actually here the Avengers are there they just saved the earth from an alien invasion so I'm not surprised that he's going to step up to their defense. In a mid credit sequence, the other confers with his master, a soon-to-be-very-familiar purple-skinned titan, about their recent defeat on Earth. And then, of course, finally in a post credit sequence, we see the Avengers silently eating shawarma.
1: I heard that they shot this scene a while after the rest of the movie, and that Chris Evans was in the production for Snowpiercer, and therefore had Uh, his beard from Snowpiercer and couldn't shave it or change it, so that's why he's covering up his whole face so awkwardly in this scene.
0: That's true. Not only did he have a beard, but it was his natural kind of dark hair color. From what I've heard, they put a very rough-looking, hastily made latex something or other over Chris Evans' chin to hide the beard. They had him resting the chin, resting his chin in that big gloved hand, just in case the latex thing wasn't enough. This is the part of the podcast where we talk about characters and actors. We've got quite a few to go through tonight, starting with none other than Robert Downey Jr. as Tony Stark, Iron Man.
1: I see this movie as a really big growth movie for Tony. You know, he goes from his schoolyard verbal taunts with Cap to actively sacrificing himself to save everyone. And I think even though he's grown in the other Iron Man movies, everything has always been about him. And, you know, sure, he's Iron Man and there are things he's done in other movies for the good of other people, like when he saved the villagers in Golmira in the first Iron Man movie. But he was literally going to send himself into outer space, never to be heard from again, for the sake of arguably just New York, but also ostensibly the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And I think that is a far cry from going in as the hero Indigo Mira.
0: Let's also not forget that this is the guy who was deemed too self-centered to actually be an Avenger, and now here he is working as part of a team. Tony is still Tony, and he'll always be Tony right up until the bitter end, but yes, he most certainly takes some really important steps on the road to selflessness in this movie. Chris Evans as Steve Rogers, Captain America.
1: We both said this earlier, but Cap just isn't written well in this movie, and I would argue also in Age of Ultron. He's a stuffy, grumpy old man, and yeah, I'd be grumpy too after everything that happened, but his straight-laced soldier persona just isn't right. At the very least, I'll say his line about to Tony about, you wouldn't lay down across the wire and let the other guy crawl over a bit is to me, spot on. That's the only thing that feels right in this movie is his willingness to sacrifice himself for the greater good. And the fact that he sees that as such an important sort of character position to have. And that's one of the main reasons why he doesn't like Tony is that Tony thinks everything's about himself. I would argue that Cap is self-centered to a certain extent, but he is always thinking about the greater good. And I think Joss Whedon just turned that dial up a little too high into the goody-two-shoes straight-laced soldier thing instead of Steve's chaotic good that happens.
0: We all know how much you love chaotic good, and I agree with you. I feel like I'm beating a dead horse here. I've already thrown Joss Whedon under the bus two or three times in this podcast already. I've said I'm not a big fan of his work. He wrote the screenplays for both The Avengers and Age of Ultron, so (laughs) frankly, I lay the blame for the blandness with which Cap is written in those movies squarely. I lay that squarely at his feet. Marcus and McFeely, who wrote the three Captain America movies, Infinity War, and Endgame, I don't know. They just seem to be the only ones who know how to write improperly.
1: properly. Right, yeah, because there is a big difference between Cap and Age of Ultron and Cap and Infinity War, and it's not just because... Of what's happened in the intervening movies, mm-hmm. he
0: feels like more of a changing, growing, and realistic person. Who's for all of his, you know, like you said before, so-called "goody two shoes" ishness, he's still human, and he still has his dark side. He talks about that in Civil War. Tony says, "I don't trust anyone who doesn't have a dark side," and he's like, "Well, maybe we just haven't seen it yet." Mark Ruffalo as Bruce Banner, the Hulk. This film marks. Mark Ruffalo's debut as Bruce Banner, of course, and I love it. Up to this point, we've had Bill Bixby from the Hulk TV series in the late 70s and early 80s, Eric Bana from the Yang Lee film, and Edward Norton from Incredible Hulk all playing him. And while they're all fantastic actors in their own right and each brought something notable to the role, I prefer Ruffalo's portrayal because he brings a good balance between his serious side, his humorous side, his brainy awkward side, and his more sensitive side. I particularly enjoy him in this movie and in Age of Ultron. So it's kind of funny where I think Joss Whedon failed with Cap. In my opinion, I think he's succeeded really well with Banner.
1: Right. And I think this was a great way to introduce Mark Ruffalo. And, you know, of course, like you just said, I think for all that Joss Whedon fails a lot of the characters in terms of their characterizations, I think Ruffalo's Banner is the most consistent from movie to movie. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's, you know, it's a toss up between him and RDJ's Tony Stark. I think they're both the most consistent characters from each different director that writes them.
0: Chris Hemsworth as Thor. I would like to have seen Thor do more in this movie. I know it's a big ensemble and not everyone can shine, but I just feel like he spent most of the movie either confronting Loki intensely or fighting, and that's it. We talk about how Tony is not a team player. I actually think that Thor is the one that seems to be the least team-oriented. In the first two Avengers movies, the only one he seems to really get along with, and understandably so, is Cap. Outside of his own movies, I think the only crossover movies where he seems to have any textured storylines are Infinity War, and you know he spends most of that movie playing off of Rocket and Groot and Endgame, which is just an entirely different kind of animal to begin with. So that's that's like in its own category.
1: I guess at least for this movie, it kind of makes sense, though, that he wouldn't care much about the team because he kind of doesn't really even know that the team exists. You know, he only came down to stop Loki, and it just so happens that there are other humans also invested in the situation and there's kind of not much he can do about that and his only real connection in this movie is Coulson and Selvig and Jane who's not here and so I think I would have liked to have seen you know even one scene of Thor with Selvig because we get the nice scene with Coulson and obviously I don't know when you would have ever put a scene with Selvig in there because everybody's kind of busy (laughs) but you know it's his one link to Jane that isn't strictly a professional link, and it would have been nice to see something like that. I think that would have not necessarily made Thor a better team player, but I think it would have legitimized his role in the group.
0: It would have just been a nice thing to see, an acknowledgement that These two know each other, even though it's kind of explained implicitly in the beginning of the movie when Selvig is like, you're you're Loki, brother of Thor. He knows who these players are. Scarlett Johansson as Natasha Romanoff, the Black Widow. We spent so much time in Iron Man 2 seeing Natasha play the role of Natalie Rushman that we didn't get to learn very much about her. That all changes with this movie, and we get a lot of Black Widow in this movie. Which i love we get to see her being a spy again we get to see her fight but we also get to see more of her vulnerable side the establishment of her friendship with hawkeye is one example of that i think this is a relationship that kind of transcends friendship and family and certainly any kind of romantic situation it's a very powerful and unique bond born out of shared experiences to which very few others could possibly relate and i know that in film or television or any other medium really you're supposed to show and not tell and yet I feel like whenever Tasha talks about how she wants to try and get the red out of her ledger I feel her sincerity I think she genuinely wants to do what she can to make up for all of the various unsavory things that she's done in the past and Scarlett Johansson just plays that all really well and she gets even better as the movies go on as far as I'm concerned
1: you know you got to hear a lot of my Natasha opinions earlier in the episode But despite all that, I am still glad that this is the start of what we could consider a real character and not just the sort of one dimensional female character that gets tossed in the movie for the sake of being there. And of course, for now, until we get to see her in her own movie, she exists kind of for the sake of the main male characters but she does also get to have a backstory and she also gets to have her own purposes for things and she has her own choices to make and I do appreciate that and I think the more we get to know her the more she gets to be sort of real especially in this movie
0: Jeremy Renner as Clint Barton Hawkeye
1: Hawkeye he's probably my second favorite to bucky and steve as a pair they go together i can't i can't <laughs> separate one or the other so it's bucky and steve no spaces all together is one word and then hawkeye you
0: you don't you don't you don't subscribe to the stucky appellation or is that like a shipper thing
1: that's a shipper thing got it okay thank they're you just for, bucky and steve
0: thank you for clearing that up for me
1: comma best friends so it goes number one bucky and steve, steve comma comma best, friends. best friends number two Hawkeye. Hawkeye. So I know that there was some stuff swirling around about how originally Jeremy Renner was supposed to get more airtime as Clint Barton, and then he basically got sidelined and was only ever seen until the final fight as like the evil Clint. But I am still glad that we got to see more of him in this movie, especially after just being introduced to him in Thor. To see him as a more fleshed out character is really great. I think it's between this movie and Endgame in terms of which movie that I liked him the best in.
0: Was it at least a little unfortunate that Clint spent more than half the movie working against the good guys? Perhaps. But You also needed to give Natasha a compelling reason to go on this crazy mission that's not what she trained for. And Hawkeye gets some really great action in the Battle of New York. I mean, we talked about that quite a bit earlier in the podcast. Besides, he gets to do a lot in every appearance in the MCU from this point on. So I'm okay with how he turned out in this movie. Personally, I think Renner's best performance is in Endgame, but I like Hawkeye himself. I like Hawkeye the character the most, probably in Ultron and Civil War. Those are the movies in which you See Clint being Clint the most. We see a very different kind of Clint in Endgame, naturally. Tom Hiddleston as Loki. We already got to the heart of Loki's motivations and reasons for being the way that he is in Thor. So I had absolutely no problem with him being a full-on maniacal nut job in this movie. Tom Hiddleston owns every part of that role, including and perhaps especially the crazy.
1: I don't think I've ever seen Tom Hiddleston not play a character who was either very evil or very chaotic and crazy. I have always really liked that scene where he's fighting with Thor on Stark Tower and you think, you know, maybe just for a second he's going to turn it around. But that trickster god, chaos monster part of him kicks in, sort of along with all the trauma of whatever happened after he fell off the Bifrost and in between this point, and he just can't stop it.
0: Clark Gregg as Agent Phil Coulson.
1: I think knowing that he was going to be a major part of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. somehow made it okay that he got killed in this movie. And I've also always kind of loved his death. It's you know, it's a hero's death. He was the last man standing between Loki and the chaos of the Battle of New York. And even though he wasn't successful, it feels like there could be this folklore around it later. I can just imagine everyone who was on the helicarrier or, you know, like little baby shield agents talking about it later about how he was the one non-superhero guy to stand up to Loki.
0: It's kind of a shame that just as we actually get to know Phil Coulson on a more personal level, he gets killed off. I mentioned this earlier. Joss Whedon loves to make you think he's going to kill off one person in his movies and then surprises you by killing off someone else instead I admit I'm not sure who the thought he was gonna kill person (laughs) would be in this movie I'd say Tony if not for the fact that Coulson dies first you know your comment about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I I think is very relevant they started developing Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. right around the time this movie came out summer of 2012 because Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. debuted in the fall of the following year 2013 so it's possible that they were planning on developing Coulson more on that show and I guess used his death as sort of a jumping off slash entry point. Kobe Smulders as Agent Maria Hill. Alright, full disclosure up front, I think Kobe Smulders is hot. There, I said it. It's out in the open, so so now we can move on. In the comics, Maria Hill is portrayed as this very no-nonsense, inflexible, almost unforgiving sort of person, and I'm actually glad they kind of toned that down a little bit for this film. I like Kobe Smulders' portrayal because she retains the serious by-the-book nature of the character in the comics, but she isn't quite as severe as her character in the comics is, for lack of a better word. I like her much more or in Winter Soldier, and even in her brief appearance in Age of Ultron. But this film was a very good start for her, I thought.
1: I really like her too. But honestly, my favorite scene or clip of her in this movie is that one scene in the bloopers where she's howling for Coulson after his death. <laughs> and the, the big music. Coulson! The <laughs> I will offend you, Coulson! Coulson! I always thought that was so funny. But I agree. You are the greatest man I ever knew. You will be avenged. You will be avenged. (laughs) But I think even in Winter Soldier, because I don't know how she is in the comics, but she is pretty serious in Winter Soldier. But I think you get the feeling through the character that she is also a good part of a team and could pretty easily get along with everyone. And whether that's shield training or the way her personality is, I really like her. Yeah.
0: Stellan Skarsgård as Dr. Eric Selvig. Poor Dr. Selvig. He spends most of this movie being Loki's puppet, and we don't really get to see the ramifications of that until Thor The Dark World. So I guess that's really all we can say about him. So we will move on to Samuel L. Jackson as Nick Fury. This is the most screen time that Fury has gotten in the MCU thus far, and I'm not sure what more I can say other than that It's mainly just Sam Jackson being Sam Jackson. Well, maybe I can say a little more about him. Up to this point, Fury has just been that shadow figure watching from behind the scenes and quietly pulling the strings of much of the action. This is really the first time we get to see him as an active participant in the action. He's got a lot to do in this movie. Fury is his own man and his decisions to defy the World Security Council and to gamble so heavily on the success of the Avengers should come as no surprise to anyone.
1: It's hard for me to understand Fury. Of course he's a spy. Tony says he's the spy, so that would make sense. But at least for me, he has some pretty skewed judgment at times. And he starts out this movie fully ready to go in on phase two of using alien tech to make weapons. And then by the end of it, he is, to me, kind of gone rogue. And I appreciate that by going rogue, he does the right thing. But it feels like there's this little bit of whiplash that goes on with him. And obviously, we'll talk about that in Winter Soldier, but it feels like that too, where he's so gung-ho about Project Insight. And then once he thinks about it for more than half a second, he's like, uh-huh. oh, This is bad. That same thing happened with the phase two weapons of he thought this was a good idea until he realized like "Mm, maybe we haven't thought this all the way through and the judgment calls that he makes have always really just been off to me
0: i don't think that him supporting phase two and him going rogue by the end of the movie are necessarily mutually exclusive building weapons to defend the earth is one thing nuking new york city is something else entirely or perhaps once the council decides to nuke new york that's when fury realizes that listening to his bosses all the time may not be a good idea miscellaneous stuff We often talk about the music of the MCU movies, and there's a good one here, because once again, Alan Silvestri, who wrote the score for Captain America, the first Avenger, has come back to score the Avengers.
1: My favorite musical part of this movie is the little string quartet group during the whole scene in Stuttgart, um, with it cutting from Loki and Hawkeye back to Cap and Shield. It's so perfect, and I love the climax of the movie going right in time with Loki attacking that guy for his eye. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a perfect use of the music. I love it every time. When
0: you see the Quinjet flying through the clouds and you hear it, it just, it somehow does seem very appropriate. Alan Silvestri finally gives us our first truly memorable MCU theme with his Captain America march. And here he gives us our second with the Avengers theme, which by the time Endgame comes around, I think it rapidly becomes one of the more recognizable pieces, frankly, of film or TV music ever made. I think eventually that theme is going to become as recognizable as the theme to Star Wars or Indiana Jones or. Or Harry Potter, or what have you, in my humble opinion. And that is our review of Marvel's The Avengers. Thank you all so much for listening. We are going to take a few weeks off because even though you're listening to this podcast, In early January, for us, it's the week before Christmas. In fact, it's exactly one week before Christmas for us. So we're going to take an extra week to unwind and chill and relax and do whatever we want to do in our first ever quarantine Christmas.
1: Hopefully our only quarantine Christmas. Oh,
0: oh, exactly. (laughs) Hopefully our only quarantine Christmas. But we will be back in either late January or early February with something a little different. We're not going to jump to Iron Man 3 right away. We are going to be doing a special top five episode and this one will be our top five favorite mcu moments so that'll be a nice little change of pace something different so until then happy new year everybody stay safe we will talk to you all on the flip side thanks for listening and have a good night see you later